This is a crowd podcast. The predicament was dire. I knew the Iraqis were coming in and I actually spelled it out to the crew. And that's when they all of a sudden realized that the airplane wasn't going anywhere and we had no protection at all from anybody. If you found yourself stranded in a war-torn country with no communication to the outside world and no idea how long your ordeal would last, what would you do? On the one hand, the Flight 149 passengers were in the relative safety of the city hotels. They had water and food and shelter from gunfire and bombs. But who knew what would happen next? Would they be rescued? Would Saddam Hussein back down? Or could there be an even worse fate lying ahead? If you were given the chance to escape, would you take it? This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. It's the true story of an international hostage crisis and a 30-year cover-up. In the last episode, we heard how Jenny had decided to risk it, joining a convoy out of Kuwait, disguising herself as a Malaysian citizen. Bowie's partner, Anthony, also managed to smuggle himself out with fake paperwork. But there was no way of knowing if he'd made it to safety. I didn't know if he was dead or alive. Did he get discovered? Is he in a ditch on the road up to Baghdad? If he got out through the desert, like to Amman, which was what we had heard other people had done, had he been detained in Amman? He didn't have his passport on him. Did the British Embassy recognise him as being a British citizen without his passport? Did he get back to London? If he got back to London, is he okay? Is his health okay? You know, uh, all of that going on all the time. After the Malaysian and Indian passengers had left, along with a few stowaways like Anthony, security was ramped up at the hotel. Iraqi guards were stationed on every floor and at the hotel doors. Saddam Hussein's plan was becoming clearer. Gregor Schatz, just 17, was starting to realize that his German nationality was affecting his chance of release. They'd let all the other nationalities who were not French, German, British or American go. That was already a worrying sign. That was really freaked me out as well because I was like, well, why would they keep just us? They're going to shoot us now? I was not somebody who was immensely interested in politics, but, you know, I was, I watched the news every day. I was, even at that time, I was, you know, informed about world events, let's say. And I think it was, obviously, the French, Germans, British and Americans were more important targets. Gregor was spot on. The tension between European and American governments with Saddam Hussein's regime meant that those nationalities were especially useful as hostages. President Bush and Prime Minister Thatcher had already sent thousands of troops to Saudi Arabia to counter Iraq's aggression. They weren't backing down. Here's President Bush addressing American troops at the Pentagon. Our objectives remain clear. The immediate, complete and unconditional withdrawal of all Iraqi forces from Kuwait, the restoration of Kuwait's legitimate government, security and stability of Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf, and protection of the lives of American citizens abroad. We will achieve these honorable goals. As the political tension increased, 
so did the anxiety amongst the hostages. But the official message from both British Airways and the Embassy was, do not try to escape. Despite the warning, six men decided they would take their chances. They slipped away at night in two convoys of stolen cars and headed across the flat expanse of desert to the south, towards the Saudi border. Two of them, including a German from Flight 149, got away. But the other four were caught by Iraqi patrols and brought back to the hotel at gunpoint. This only fueled the debate among the passengers. Should they stay? Or should they try and get out? Flight 149 Captain Richard Brunier was especially keen to escape. When I interviewed him back in 2007, I asked him about this. You had a very particular reason which you mentioned to your crew about not wanting to get caught. What was that? I have a very unusual surname. And my father was a prominent businessman in the Middle East um, during the 50s and 60s when... Baghdad was really the jewel in the Middle Eastern crown, and he, he, was a, he was a very well-respected and well-known man, especially with the Iraqis, and I can't remember the exact details, but he had a run-in with Saddam Hussein at one stage, and I thought, well, he'll probably take it out on me. He'll find Brunyate amongst the list of people he's got on his hands at some stage, and what he can't take out of the father, because he was dead at that time, he'll take out on the son. The details might be a bit vague, but that's the reason Richard gave me for needing to find an escape route. He said he had begun sneaking out into the city to get intelligence from locals and struck lucky by finding a contact from the Kuwaiti resistance. This always seemed like a bit of a coincidence to me, a bit odd. The idea that he could just knock on some doors and happen to come across members of the resistance, an underground organisation. Again, back in 2007, I quizzed him on this. It seems quite extraordinary, and I have to say people I've told this story to think it's quite extraordinary, that you just wander out of your hotel in your flip-flops and you end up meeting somebody who turned out to be a top resistance leader. A lot of it was luck and coincidence, but I did have a few, a few problems with the Iraqis, many of whom were Kurds, so I couldn't really make myself understood. But they were more concerned about my own safety. In fact, one of them stopped a car one day and got hold of the Kuwaiti and dragged him out and said, take his car. He does seem to avoid the question there, doesn't he? We'll come back to why this might be a little later. But somehow or other, he links up with a leader in the Kuwaiti resistance, a growing grassroots movement that sprung up after the Iraqi forces invaded. The story of the Kuwaiti resistance has been largely ignored in the West. It shouldn't be. It was made up of extremely brave, ordinary citizens, many of them young women, who risked their lives to end the Iraqi occupation and free their country. One of them was Azra al-Kabandi. When I discovered her story while researching my book, I was astonished. It moved me to tears. How is it that this amazing story is not better known? Azra was a confident young woman who'd studied in the United States, wore jeans and t-shirts, and had an American accent. Her friends described her as a pint-sized powerhouse of energy, five feet tall with a fiery temper. She usually had her dark hair in a ponytail and wore large glasses. She was vocal in declaring her support for democracy and women's rights, 
controversial opinions in Kuwait, even before the invasion. At the beginning of the Iraqi occupation, she and a female friend moved into an abandoned school in an old villa on the coast. There, they plotted Iraqi positions to help in what they hoped would be a quick Allied invasion. They used a satellite phone to establish a connection to the Kuwaiti government in exile in Saudi Arabia and the Kuwaiti embassy in Washington. Aswa threw herself into resistance work. She smuggled weapons from Basra in Iraq to Kuwait, money and more weapons from Saudi Arabia. She single-handedly destroyed some of the monitored telephones and communications set up by the Iraqis, provided foreign families with food and money, and took care of 65 foreign hostages, risking a guaranteed execution. But that's just the start of it. Disguised as an Indian housekeeper, she was able to break into the heavily guarded Ministry of Civil Information to steal computer disks and smuggle them to Saudi. She then managed to come back over the border, past the Iraqi guards, with a new identity of Sarah Mubarak. She was at the forefront as the resistance turned violent, bombing cars and killing many Iraqi soldiers. She was also able to protect Kuwaiti accounts at the Central Bank of Kuwait, stopping the Iraqis from hacking into them and stealing the money. There was almost no end to this woman's courage and determination. She was due to be smuggled out to give evidence to the US Congress on what was happening in her country. The resistance thought she would make a powerful advocate for Kuwait in front of the cameras in America, a star witness. But after she crossed the border, she looked back at her country and she decided to turn around. Her resistance colleagues pleaded with her to go on, that she'd done enough for the cause, that she'd taken enough risks. They suspected the Iraqis had learned of her false identity. But if Azra had a fault, it was overconfidence. She thought the Iraqis were too stupid to catch her and she didn't want to leave her country while it was occupied. So she decided to stay and carry on the fight. It was to prove her undoing. She tried to run one roadblock too many and was arrested at a checkpoint. That night, the dreaded Iraqi secret police raided her family home, arresting her father and brother. They beat Azra in front of her father. She was brutally tortured for 17 days, but she would not give up her friends and resistance colleagues. Her captors, brutal as they were, were in awe of her courage. Later, they said, she refused to give them any information at all, despite the torture. Once they realized they couldn't break her resolve, they murdered her with four shots to the chest and one to the head. Her hands were bound with a plastic tie and her head sliced in two with an axe. Her body was dumped outside her family home. She was still wearing the same clothes as when she was captured. A later autopsy revealed she'd been raped. The doctor stated her body was completely mutilated. 
The Iraqi death certificate claimed she died in hospital. These were the risks, the extraordinary risks, that the Kuwaiti resistance were taking when they helped Flight 149 Captain Richard Brunyate. The resistance warned Richard. They said the Iraqis were about to start rounding up all Westerners in the city hotels, and they urged him to try to escape. He was torn between his duty as captain and his fear of what would happen to him if he stayed. Eventually, he called a secret meeting of his crew. I asked flight attendant Helen Peters about the meeting. I've actually got um, my diary here. I don't know if you wanted me to read some of that. Oh, yes, actually, why don't you, if there's an entry which relates to that, why don't you read that now? That would be great. Okay. Saturday, the 18th of August, day 17. Some soldiers had said today would be the day that something would start to happen. About 11 a.m. I received a telephone call. There was to be an emergency meeting in the captain's room. We were not to tell anyone else. It was for our crew only. Everybody was there. They were feeling very apprehensive and unsure as to why we had been summoned. Richard, the captain, was doing the talking. We were given the choice either to stay here and not know what would happen to us or escape to a safe house. Richard said it was every man for himself. Here's Richard talking about the same meeting. I spelled it out in uncertain terms, exactly the seriousness of our situation. The, the, the predicament was dire. I knew the Iraqis were coming in, and I actually spelled it out to the crew. And that's when they all of a sudden realised that the aeroplane wasn't going anywhere, and we had no protection at all from anybody. They had just minutes to decide whether to join Brunyate's escape team, or take their chances with the Iraqis at the hotel, and an uncertain future. What would you do? We last left Helen trying to decide whether she should join the escape team. Without many options on the table, she decided to take a chance. She was told to expect a call in a few hours with details of what to do next. But things took an unexpected turn. While she was waiting for the call, Helen and her colleague Claire spotted jeeps full of Iraqi troops swarming around the hotel. I'll let Helen pick up the story with her diary. Something was happening, and it was happening a lot quicker than we expected. I rushed into the dining room to tell some of the crew. I saw only five of them. I told them to move now as the soldiers were entering the hotel. We picked up our rucksacks and fled the room down to the exit towards the escape route. We were determined to get to the meeting point. Eventually, we found a door which opened up to the conference room. It was very dark and quiet inside. We looked around very cautiously, making sure there was no soldiers around. Suddenly, we caught sight of a security guard. He was heading towards us. We quickly looked around and as our eyes adjusted to the dark, we saw a cupboard. We ran towards it and hid inside. It was pitch black. Our ears were straining to hear every sound. After what seemed like an age, we opened the door carefully and looked around the room. We saw the ladies' toilets, so crept towards them, looking and listening all the time. We strained our ears to listen for any sound. We heard footsteps. It was the security guard again. We held our breath. All I could hear was the sound of Claire's watch ticking and my heart thumping. 
While Helen was stuck hiding from an Iraqi guard, Richard was making a run for it with the crew members he'd been able to round up, including his co-pilot, Gordon Galt. Getting out of the hotel was... We didn't know it at the time, but it was actually fraught with danger. We, we piled the six of us into this car and we drove through the underneath of the hotel, through the service center, and went to the house, which only I knew where it was, and Gordon, but he knew where it was as well. What I didn't know at the time was when we went out through the service entrance, the Iraqis were coming to round us all up in through the main entrance, and that's how close I'd left it. If I'd gone the day before, I could have got all 80 away and some of the passengers, but we'd left it so late, my trigger point was so late that it, I almost got caught myself. They had planned to come back to collect the others, but the hotel was now surrounded with barricades. No one could get in or out. Richard had made it to the safe house, but with just five of his crew. After hiding in the toilet for what must have seemed like an eternity, Helen realised they'd missed the pickup. It was too late. She headed back upstairs. As we made our way up to the crew room, some girls from the other crew asked us why we were still here. Some of our crew had managed to escape. We found out that Richard, Malcolm, Brian, Gordon, Maxine and Jackie had escaped. I hope they made it to the safe house. Apparently the car came to collect them earlier than planned, so Richard had told whoever he saw at the time, so they went in just the clothes they were standing in. Some of the crew were feeling very angry and let down. Why didn't we try to escape earlier? Tonight I broke down. and cried for the first time. I was suddenly feeling very lonely. I now feel very angry and upset. I doubt if I will sleep tonight. God, get me out of this place. The news of the escape was devastating, not just to Helen, but also to many of the remaining passengers. And not only had their captain gone, but BA manager Laurie O'Toole was also nowhere to be found. They'd been abandoned. Bear in mind, they'd been told to stay put, to not try to escape. They were furious. As the most senior remaining BA staff member, Clive Earthy was left to pick up the pieces. Yeah, it was very embarrassing at the hotel, of course. People noticed that uh, some crew had disappeared and uh, it was fallen to me to say that um, some of the crew have gone, but there's still an awful lot of crew left behind to look after the passengers and support them as well, of course. It's a very difficult time. Just as the passengers were dealing with the fact that their captain and local manager had gone, Iraqi troops stormed into the hotel. The Iraqi military arrived in the hotel and filled up the lifts and upstairs onto the roof with all sorts of machinery, guns and uh, heavy stuff, which we could only assume to be military stuff that was onto the roof of the hotel. There was a strong military, Iraqi military presence in the lobby and uh, over um, dinner that evening they came in 
in force and uh, told everybody to stay in the restaurant there because the rest of the military were going to be searching the hotel. Here's Helen Peters again. And all of a sudden, the soldiers were coming in and shutting all the doors. So there was no way of getting out at all. And we were told that we had to stay there. And they were looking for something. Now, to me, it was just a very terrifying experience. I really felt that the soldiers had come in, they all had um, guns. And I just felt at that time that they could possibly just, you know, machine gun us all down, you know. And, we, you know, it was something that went through my mind and I just... I just was just really, really scared. Apparently they were looking for some Q80s, maybe in hiding. They went through everybody's room, through all their belongings. They took things, but we didn't know at the time what they were doing. They didn't really explain themselves. And it was just a really, really scary moment for me. I remember shaking and I'm not a nervous person. And I was, my hands were shaking like crazy. I was just so scared. It was only, I believe, the following day that we were all ordered to get down into the lobby of the hotel on strict orders of the Iraqi regime to be taken somewhere else. It was all rather frightening. It was really, really frightening. And there were a lot of Iraqi military heavyweights there and they just sort of said to us, you know, we're going to call out names which are from the passports, which they got from the uh, management, and in groups of about 15 people, maybe 20, escorted by gun outside and onto a coach, which was immediately driven away into the dark, into the night, and replaced by yet another coach. So there was a whole fleet of Iraqi army coaches already out there, it was very, very frightening, and you realised that you were all being taken out, but they wouldn't tell you where. Young Gregor Schatz was also rounded up. And then when they told us to get on the buses, without telling us where they're taking us, that was, for me, the first time in my ordeal where I, I literally felt scared for my life. I really thought they are going to take us and shoot us in the desert somewhere, and I thought, this is it. Their stay at the hotel was over. They were leaving, destination unknown. In the centre of Kuwait City, B. George and Deborah Saloum were still hiding out in their hotel with their son, Preston. By this time, Iraqi soldiers had taken over parts of the hotel. The woman had been told it wasn't safe for them to be in any of the communal areas. They weren't allowed downstairs and had to eat in their rooms. So when Deborah got an infection and needed some medical attention, they knew it was going to be risky. The hotel arranged for some of the Middle Eastern men who were assistant managers to go on the bus with us. They had a little transit bus that they would go around and forage for food every day. And uh, there was another man that needed to go to the hospital with us as well. And. Uh, while we were at the hospital, we saw wounded soldiers. We saw Iraqi soldiers. Of course, the 
nurses there were very protective and they whisked us behind curtains and kept us out of the way and told us to speak softly, not to let them hear us speaking English. And of course, uh, I wore a scarf around my head and tried to stay as much unnoticeable as possible. They gave me an IV with the antibiotic and they brought us back. But there were seven other individuals that were U.S. citizens. They were men at the hotel and we had left our son with them and asked them to take responsibility for getting him to the embassy or home, whichever one, if for some reason we didn't get back. At this point, I was pretty down. The embassy made it quite clear that we were not uh, welcome to come there. We had no more communications to the U.S. We had left our son in the care of people we didn't know. Um, it was pretty pretty devastating emotionally, you know, to be dropped into a war zone, which we obviously were. More and more people were leaving the hotel. It was becoming more and more empty. At this point, I was looking for places to hide. I was becoming quite uh, concerned after listening to all the the things that the manager's wives were telling about uh, maids and people who work for them being raped. Um, made to take care of the Iraqis, soldiers. Rumours that Westerners were being picked up had started to ripple through the city. Deborah was keeping her ear to the ground for any scraps of news. We were allowed to go down for an hour every so few days to the little gift shop that they had um, things that you could purchase, and so books and different kinds of toiletries and things. So B. George and our son Preston had gone to lunch, and we were allowed to go down to the gift shop. While I was there, I was on the side of the, uh, a display cabinet that had books, and so I was not being observed, and I overheard a conversation with the hotel manager saying that he was evacuating his family that was there in the hotel to one of the embassy staff's homes. I uh, was very depressed then, went back up to the room, and I decided that we were going to the embassy and they were going to have to turn us away at the door. I observed when I was down in the lobby area that the, the person who had driven us to the hospital was there eating his lunch. And we had already arranged our luggage so that one bag was emergency, we're out of there, we don't have time for anything else, two bags is good, and three bags is everything, and we have our time to get it together. So I went into our room, grabbed the one bag, and went down to the lobby. I told the man that drove the truck, he was sitting there at a little table, I told him I, need, I was sick and needed to go to the hospital. He was quite tired and agitated, and as he started to get up, I saw the keys laying on his, next to his plate, and I picked them up. So about that time, um, B. George and our son Preston got to the lobby, asked me what was going on. I explained to them what had happened, and B. George and Preston had gone back up to the room, and I had gone up to get one more piece of luggage, and the embassy had called and said that they were ready to uh, have us come in. And I said, well, it's a good thing because we're on our way. And Preston and B. George went and told several of the other American men to come on. We were going to the embassy. So we all got on the bus, and the poor little guy said, you're all going to the hospital? And 
and we said no we're going to the embassy and the embassy wasn't that far the embassy wasn't even maybe 10 minutes away so fortunately for us we were close by but we made it to the embassy and as they said they were ready to take us in then I bet you never thought uh, at any stage in your life you'd be sort of grabbing keys and effectively hijacking a vehicle. No, I wasn't thinking. I was reacting. It was just a reaction. I wasn't like pre-planned, predetermined. It just seemed like the opportunity presented itself and I took advantage of it. The saloons may have made it to the American Embassy, but their ordeal was far from over. We'll hear what happened when the Embassy found itself under siege later in the series. By now, any Westerner who hadn't made it to an embassy or a safe house was being arrested. Gregor and his fellow hostages were crammed onto buses in the scorching afternoon heat. No one told them where they were headed. People were really asking, but tell us, where are you taking us? And just, you know, the unknown, you fear the worst. And if they just say, just do it, and don't give you an answer, they could have just said, we're taking you to Basra, which is what happened in the end. But they didn't say that, right? So when you're in such an unfamiliar environment and uh, you have all these fears running through your head, which have been sort of compounded by doing nothing but hanging around in the hotel and not being able to go out and, and seeing tanks and soldiers all around. So, yeah, that was a very, very scary moment for me. After reaching Basra, they were put on a train to Baghdad. Of course, all of us were hoping uh, it means the train to Baghdad to then be let out from there and that somehow we're going to be uh, our release is going to be arranged uh, through Baghdad airport instead. That train journey was really, really frightening just in the sense that we got on the train, night train through the desert. It was and they put the air conditioning on so strong that it was freezing after the heat of the day. The bus was really, really hot. I was literally worried for some of the older people on the bus who I saw sweating and struggling to breathe because of the heat, which was really immense. And then that night, suddenly we were freezing in the train. And uh, of course, in every carriage, there was again soldiers with machine guns parading up and down. I remember I looked out the window and saw the barbed wire wrapped around the handles of the train so that nobody could jump out in the desert, for instance. And that really freaked me out as well. Barry Manners was also taken to Baghdad. By then it became obvious that uh, we were being taken up to Baghdad and kept in some way. Did you think when you reached Baghdad that there was any chance they were about to let you go? Or had you resigned yourself to, to, to being a hostage? Did you even think of yourself as a hostage at that stage? Yeah, we were hostages. I mean, we did because there were secret police armed guards in civvies with pistols on the bus. And there were also conscripts with automatic weapons. We were under arrest. We weren't on the, the Thompson bus from the airport <laughs> with a rep. Uh, you know, I mean, it was pretty obvious that our holiday had deteriorated somewhat. And no, we were very much prisoners. Here's Clive. We just drove off into the night. I, I did try to open the curtain at the window and was immediately shouted at by the Iraqi soldier sitting by the side of the driver at the front and just driven out and around and around in circles in the dark 
until early dawn and all of a sudden the, the coach stopped right out in the middle of nowhere and we saw the dawn come up before the soldier got back on and uh, said right we're off somewhere else and we ended up at uh, Shoe Wake Port but yes we all knew we were being taken as hostages we all knew that you couldn't help it the soldiers were very threatening with their big guns and things and uh, we had women crying and it, it was not a pleasant uh, experience I can assure you it was very, very frightening. Shuwake is Kuwait's largest port, located just a few kilometres west of the city. The soldiers were clearly trying to disorient everyone by driving around in circles, a classic technique. It was no accident that Clyde was being brought here. It was a strategic location that would be crucial if Western forces decided to attack. The Flight 149 hostages were now human shields, scattered all across Iraq and Kuwait at key targets. Gregor was taken west of Baghdad to a dam in Fallujah. Barry was taken north to the Kurdistan region. Saddam Hussein was determined to make use of his guests, as he insisted on calling them. If Thatcher and Bush were going to attack Iraq, they were going to have to bomb their own citizens. Next time on the secret history of Flight 149. You realised that there was a very good chance that we'd be blown apart in some chemical factory. We were absolutely uh, starving at one stage, and so we decided, unfortunately, that maybe the cat would have to be slaughtered for a little bit of food. You knew if they had to shoot us, they would do it. So I'm thinking, when they start shooting us, we need to have a plan to overcome this garden if we can make a run for it, rather than just get lined up and shot. The secret history of Flight 149 is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound design is by Rory Ouskeri. To get episodes without adverts, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. Other ad-free podcasts on the Crowd Stories channel include American Vigilante, about controversial renegade crime fighter Casey, and Murder in House 2, the inside story of one of the biggest cover-ups in US military history. This series is based on my book Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.